It might be 2022 and three quarters of a century since integration of the military, but minority officers and enlisted people still report experiencing racism inside the ranks and in local communities. That's among the findings in a new first-of-its-kind study by Blue Star Families. It details experiences of minorities in the military and why the situation presents a recruitment obstacle. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with more. Scott, first of all, tell us about the study, the specifics. What were they trying to get at here? Yeah, well, after the George Floyd murder, the Defense Department really started looking into how they were dealing with diversity, inclusion, race, and all of those aspects of the military. Blue Star Families also started looking into this, and they did this 14-month review. They surveyed about 2,700 respondents about their experience as minorities in in the military or as families with minorities in the military. So uh, this is a a pretty in-depth look at some of the things that the Defense Department doesn't necessarily track all the time. And what were some of the big findings? especially with respect to DOD's policies as they stand now. Right. Well, one of the policies that the Defense Department had is that they considered themselves a colorblind organization and institution. Now, the Defense Department itself is extremely diverse. You could really consider it a microcosm of the United States. However, more than half the respondents said that they felt that the colorblind mentality erases part of that identity. And that's really clear from the survey alone that race is a factor in the military. 65% of black active duty respondents reported hearing racist comments or jokes, and 57% of all the respondents also reported them. They had one respondent saying that they heard a garrison commander say racial inequality doesn't exist in the Army. However, you know, that respondent felt that changes need to come just in the very basis of military culture. We heard from the Army's top enlisted officer early in in 2020, and he said that the Army needed to change its everyone is green mentality, because once uh, some people take off their uniform, they go out the gate of the their post and they're treated differently than other people because of the color of their skin. When someone goes home, they don't see that they get pulled over more often than another person or some other situation in that realm. I guess DOD is kind of powerless, though, to do anything about what happens when people are off duty in civilian clothing and away from bases and depots. It is in in those situations. However, to understand what the active duty service members are going through and also to, to realize that You know, if you maybe get a reprimand for doing something outside of base, that may be something that's factored into race. One of the things that was brought up is that military service members reported experiencing threats or harassment from their local community or their local police in the past two years. And those reports were prevalent, most prevalent among black service members. We heard from the former leader of the Army Corps of Engineers, who is uh, black and Japanese American. And he said that he had had police come and remove him from a colonel and above parking spot when he was a two star general. And what he said was that he worried much more about junior officers who don't have that general placard sitting on the dashboard of their car. Any other specifics that the survey showed that members of the military of color are feeling on the ground or experiencing on the ground? About a third of service members and their families said that they reported at least one incident of being threatened or harassed by civilian or or military community in the past two years. Those included things like Confederate or QAnon flags, just coded language that felt like discrimination. For example, an officer's wife said that uh, she basically had to force her neighbors into talking to her. And when she when she was moving in and when she left, she was told that they thought she was part of the cleaning team for that house and not actually part of someone moving into that house. Another thing is that 
40% of respondents reported that they decided not to accept orders to a new area, even though it may affect their career progression because of perceptions of racism. Now, that was mostly in geographic areas like the South, Midwest, or Alaska, where there are just perceptions of greater racism. One respondent said that they were scheduled to PCS to California in a predominantly white area and said that they asked the realtor if it was safe for their husband, who runs about two to five miles a day to run in those areas. The realtor's response was really, they didn't really have one. They were kind of afraid to answer that question. So some real issues there on the ground and on the grounds, you might say. Will this survey, do you think, have any impact on military decision making? I think it really will. The survey comes at a time when the military is, one, reckoning with race, and separately, it's desperate for recruits. The military is pulling from a shrinking pool of people who are eligible to serve. Only about 25 to 30 percent of 17 to 24-year-olds qualify. And then if you add on top of that, that COVID-19 has created a tough labor market, forcing the services to increase enlistment bonuses and seeing recruiting leads dry up. This is really an inhospitable environment in some ways for minorities. And uh, if they're not propensed to serve, the Defense Department's going to be hard up to, to find the people to fill the ranks that it needs. One of the things that General Bostic said, who's the Army Corps of Engineers leader, is that he also was the leader of recruiting command in the Army. And this kind of information would have been enormously helpful to have in the past for recruitment, for retainment, especially considering that troops are making decisions about things that leaders are not aware of, like we said, you know, deciding not to move because of perceived racism. In other words, this is not a passive issue that has gone away, but really takes ongoing and active policy work and intervention by leadership. That's right. And, and what we're seeing also is that the face of racism and white supremacy changes over the years. It's not from the 1968 following, uh, you know, a young black child to school, but also comes in different areas uh, in the 21st century in online harassment, in just really isolating people and in different ways that are much more coded and underhanded and microaggressive than you know what we saw in those terrible pictures from the 1960s. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his story with links to that study at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.